Good evening, everybody. You can turn in your Bibles to Job 27. Job chapter 27. Let me please pray one more time for us. Father, I thank you so much for this night. I thank you, God, for your ongoing kindness and mercy to us, your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would help us listen tonight, Father. Help me listen as I speak. Open your word to us, Lord. These things are uh, higher than we can know, but you've made them accessible to us in your Son by your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that he would move amongst us tonight, that he would cause us to focus completely on the text, on Christ in the text, on the truth that is there for us. And please help me speak, Father, in such a way to not hinder that in any way for anyone here. I ask this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we come to the end of Job's words as far as what he says in response to his friends, right? Um, This is his final defense, the summary of his appeal that we'll look at. We're going to look tonight at chapters 27 and then chapters 29 through, or chapter 27 and then chapters 29 through 31. Chapter 28 stands on its own for several reasons, and we'll focus on it uh, next week alone. The you here in chapter 27 is plural uh, as far as who Job is speaking to. So we, we need to get the sense that he's speaking out to all of his friends. He's closing it down as they no longer have anything that they're going to respond to or to say before, of course, Elihu shows up uh, basically as comic relief. Seriously. Uh, it's very interesting, Elihu's place in this story. In Job's final defense and summary appeal, we have the opportunity to reflect on everyone's final appeal, every human being's, to lay out what it would mean to finally get our day in court, right? To ask all our questions, present our own cases, make our own pleas for mercy. Job swore by a final oath tonight that he was innocent of anything that would have brought this suffering upon him, and he makes a final appeal to God to appear and give him a hearing. So let's hear and believe God's word together tonight. I'm going to begin at Job 27, verse 1. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for their sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him with pestilence, berries, and his widows do not weep. Though though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. 
He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. Job gives an oath here. So he's he's making an oath. You see that in the opening of the chapter where he declares as long as he has breath, he will not lie. He won't try to deceive anyone in verses 3 and 4. That is, he will never agree with the view of his friends that he is suffering because of specific sin in his life that he had committed. In fact, verses 13 through 23 here are Job's summation of their argument. That's what he's saying, which he says in verse 12, comes not from their wisdom, but from their vanity. So Job will not affirm that their argument is right, because to do so means he would have to deny his integrity. Instead, he will hold fast to his integrity until he dies. Okay, That's chapter 27. Let's jump over to chapter 29. We'll talk more about uh, chapter. We'll talk more about this next week. But one of the reasons, just so you know, why we're going the way we are, that twenty-eight, chapter twenty-eight, stands on its own, is because it isn't directly connected on either side to chapter twenty-seven or chapter twenty-nine. It's it's not even it, it is Job speaking, but it's not even immediately clear that it is. And I think that's because the author wants twenty-eight to be heard. Remember, this is kind of like a like a stage play. We're meant to hear chapter eight almost in isolation, like it's coming from someone off stage in the background. But 28 is really the heartbeat of the whole book. Um, chapters 29 through 31 that we're about to read are the final words of Job. They are his public testimony. They function as his final attempt to prove his innocence and really to force God to answer him. He's hoping. So in chapter 29, Job recalls his past to show how much he suffered, to demonstrate again his own integrity. In chapter 30, Job laments his present condition of humiliation and shame due to all his suffering. And then in chapter 31, Job restates this oath to prove his innocence as a last-ditch effort to get God to respond to him. Now let's look at these one at a time here, as quickly as we can. Chapter 29. And Job again took up his discourse. Same heading as 27. So they're, they're linked, right? And said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone upon my head, and by His light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me in my bow, ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again. 
and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence. In the light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his, among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. So he starts out in 1 through 6 with an account of what his life was like before he lost everything, right? Job looked to God as the source of this wonderful life that he had, but he no longer enjoys the friendship of God's presence. Again, we don't hear Job mourning the loss of his children or his wealth nearly as much as we hear him mourning the fact that he no longer enjoys the presence of God. He's convinced that God is no longer his friend. God is his enemy. And certainly Job did, we can be sure, mourn the loss of the material and physical things, but what weighed so heavily on his heart, what made the suffering all the more painful, was what he considered to be the loss of God, the presence of God. That's what Job longed for. He longs in verses 7 through 17 again to have the respect of his community once more. He longs for a long and blessed life rather than his suffering in verses 18 through 25. So let's pick it up in chapter 30 now. They're all, they're completely together here as Job turns from this description of his glorious past to this humiliating present he's walking in right now. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltward in the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell. In holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray. Under the nettles they huddle together. A senseless, a nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death, and to the house appointed for all living. Yet... Does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul greed for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My leer is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. To say that Job is deeply troubled by how God is treating him 
and by the fact that God has not responded to his cries for help would be the grossest of understatements, wouldn't it? Job is lamenting here. There, and there's lament throughout the Scriptures, particularly in the wisdom literature, but this isn't normal lament. Job's situation is a bit unique. It, it takes a while to get to anything resembling a resolution in Job. His suffering has so overwhelmed him that he thinks now, not just that God is far away, but God is his enemy that God is out to get him, that God is mistreating him. He's being mocked by fools in verses 1 through 15. He's been devastated by God in verses 16 to 23. And his life in verses 24 to 31 is now covered with darkness and mourning. So that's how. Remember everything this man has been through and is currently going through. That's how we walk into his final appeal in chapter 31. And before we read it, I want us to notice something as we read here about Job's strategy at this point in the story. He presents this. He's about to present this like it's a legal case. So I want us to take note of the last-ditch effort Job takes to get God to show up finally and give him a hearing where Job will finally turn thinking this is what will get him to listen. Finally, this is what will rouse God and get him to take my case. And I want us to see how closely, if we can, it might mirror the means of our approaches to God more often than we might want them to. Or at least might mirror what we really think will get God on our side. What we really think will cause God to finally show up and answer the prayer or do whatever it is that we've been asking. That's where we're going to zero in tonight. So as quickly as I can here, Without it sounding silly, let me read chapter 31. I know it's a long one. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot is hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot is stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as a badden, and it would burn to the root all my increase." If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, if he is not warmed with the fleece, if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust, 
or called to find gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. He just stops mid-sentence there. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if I've eaten its yield without payment, and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat, and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So Job dramatically, and with great detail, declares that he is innocent of any and all charges that could be brought against him. And he swears again by an oath here. He calls down curses on himself if he has committed any form of the wicked behavior that he's listing here. His thinking is that he will give God now no option but to answer him. That's what he's thinking. I I think we can draw that from the text. Once he hears just how innocent I really am, then he will listen. Then he will come and explain himself and answer my questions. Maybe I can remind him and he'll realize that he has to come. He has to answer me because I'm guiltless. I haven't done anything. And before we get too hard on him, we need to give this man the benefit of the doubt here. I mean, these are his final words. For one thing, he didn't start here. He ended here. There may even be some reluctance to it, like he feels forced into stating the different ways that he's innocent. Maybe he's out of options. You know, I've, I've, I've begged, I've cried, I've suffered, I've shaken my hands at the sky. Maybe he, and, and you haven't shown up. So he gets legal, right? He gets legal. Okay. You're righteous. You have to come. You have to come because I'm innocent. The oath here is a legal challenge offered in court that demands a response from the other party in the case. He desires that God will respond to his oath out of justice, declaring him innocent from all these charges. And again, think for his sake. Charges from whom? From what? His friends, his community, himself, but not from God. He is desperate to hear from God. In fact, in the legal sense of Job's understanding, if God remains silent now, now that Job has laid out his case and the curses, he said, let these curses fall on me if I'm guilty. Job is saying, if those don't fall on me, if that doesn't happen, then my innocence will be established. All right, it's now it's a legal case. If he claims to be innocent and the accusing party presents no case, It gets thrown out. It's a mistrial, right? That's what Job is banking on. The problem, like we said, is that God had never accused him. Still, what 
Walk back through this. This is an amazing thing. I don't think this man is lying at all. He denies that he's guilty of lust in verses 1 through 4. He denies that he's guilty of falsehood in verses 5 through 6. That he's guilty of coveting in verses 7 and 8. Adultery in verses 9 through 12. He's not guilty of mistreating his servants in verses 13 through 15. He's not guilty of mistreating the poor in verses 16 through 23. He doesn't trust in wealth in verses 24 and 25. He's not guilty of idolatry in verses 26 through 28. He doesn't even rejoice in the misfortune of his foes in 29 and 30. He hadn't failed to extend hospitality to a sojourner in verses 31 and 32. He doesn't conceal his sins and refuse to confess them in verses 33 and 34. And in verses 38 to 40, he doesn't abuse the land. He even takes good care of the earth. And that's it. Job literally rests his case right here. There's nowhere else to turn. But he did so with one last appeal in verse 35. If you saw that, let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser show up and lay out his evidence against me. Now, it's in this final appeal that we really get, I think, to the heart of Job. That if there is a character flaw, and I say that, wanting to, to be merciful to him, there is a character flaw. And, and if you think about it, surely we know here that God's claim and the Bible's claim is not that Job was sinless. That was never the issue. But it finally comes to the surface here what it is. And again, we, we want to note that he's, he's almost been pushed into it, but it is there. We need to give him leeway. But the truth is here for us to see what he finally leans on to try to get God to answer him. So even if we arrive there in pride or we're forced into it, which is, I think, what makes it all the more poignant for us, since Job also assumed, along with his friends, that the only thing that could explain his suffering is his sin, it's just that Job doesn't know what it is. That's been Job's argument. Job hasn't disagreed with the fact that wicked people get punished, per se. He's saying, I don't know what I did. So, since Job also assumed that the only thing that could explain his suffering is his sin, he also assumes that a recounting of his righteousness will then finally rouse God to come and listen to him. Right? That it's his righteousness that is the reason God should take up his case. And this is where Job and we are all fatally flawed tonight, beloved. Is it possible that the reason we go to God often with so much frustration and angst when we pray is because we believe He should answer in the affirmative to us because of what we've done or because of how hard we've tried? Do we argue with God based on our own righteousness or worthiness as to why He should answer God, I've done this. I've been faithful to this all my life. I've tried so hard all my life. I've given so much. I've done so well. How could you leave me alone like this? Right? How could you let this happen to me? I've, I've been for you. I'm on your side. I've tried hard. I thought we were all right, and look what has happened. How could you not act for me? And the basis of our asking there is the record. Right? That's the basis. Like, look, you should help me because I have offered up this much. And beloved, I'm, we do not 
want it that way. We do not want it to be math. Right? Math is hard enough, you know. Get a therapist, solve your own problems, math. It's, it's, have we come to believe that a really big basket of filthy rags will earn God's favor? If the basket is really big, if there's a lot of filthy rags. Do we believe that we're saved initially by grace, but we keep God's favor by our works? Is it our lack of belief in the foundational truth of the gospel, maybe, that grounds our ongoing frustration with God's seeming silence and inaction, inaction in our lives? Right? When, our, when our prayers do feel like they're hitting the ceiling, do we feel like they're hitting the ceiling because God is not adding up the math correctly? That you should answer, you should act in the affirmative. Under such an economy, under such an economy, a work for acceptance economy, we will die. We'll die in judgment. Do we have access to God's throne tonight? Yes. Do we have the guarantee of His favor because of the performance of someone's righteousness tonight? Yes. Can we come with confidence and hope knowing that God is immovably on our side tonight? Yes but not because we earned it. Not because of our performance of righteousness. Not by our contribution. That's not why anything, any of those things are true tonight. But because of the economy we are under tonight. We're not under a work for acceptance economy. We're under a different economy. And I'm going to read its terms to you from Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to begin at verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's not how our relationship with God is. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Job's only recourse was to appeal to God, right? To appeal to the ultimate judge of everything. Where else could he go for an answer to his questions, for an answer to his suffering in a universe that's been created and is governed by Almighty God? His agony has been increasing because he feels he's not getting a hearing, that God is withholding, not listening, refusing to answer while being the only one that knew why. You see, and we find here that all of it is based on the fact that Job is thinking, look, I've done good enough that you should be on my side. That's where all his misery ultimately is coming from. God is the only one that knew what Job did to deserve this. That's Job's thinking. There must have been something. I don't remember it. Here's what I do remember. Here's what I do know about myself. Here's all my goodness. While every human does not believe that God is their only hope for an appeal, 
God is our only hope for an appeal, and we all have an appeal. We all want somebody to take up our case for this idea we have that we want to be justified and made right and made whole and all these things. If what we really want as people is the judgment of one who knows all the details, right, has all the knowledge, will judge impartially based only on the truth, if that's what we really want as people, right? The only court in the universe where that is possible is the courtroom of the one true and living God. He's the only judge that actually knows what actually happens. That isn't reliant on anyone's testimony. He knows. He sees. His judgment is flawless. That's the two-edged sword of going to God for your appeal. Yes, He knows everything. He knows the truth. And He knows the truth. Right? He knows who we really are. But that's the only place we can appeal. There's no court we can enter where we can be guaranteed that the judge will get it right than the throne room of God Almighty. That's why Job wants his hearing with God. Who else can get it right? Beloved, under the stress and strain of life in this world, all its confusion and problems, then under the weight of our own sin and our own iniquity, because we all know we're not perfect enough on our own for God to accept us, We know what we need to be relieved, to have peace, to gain freedom, to have life. is for this God to decide we aren't guilty. We need Him to act in spite of the evidence we have to bring. We need Him to purge our records. If if, if our day in court is not going to end in our execution. We need Him to act on our behalf and make all these beautiful things true about us but that's where the issue comes and that's where Job hit the roadblock how can we go to him how can you knock on that door and ask for that Right? I remember when I was a kid um, we, were, we lived in government subsidized apartments and it was just a, like a Ferris wheel of, of people borrowing things from each other you know, and I always, my parents always sent me they never sent my cute little sister can you go over and ask the Crawleys for sugar Right, can you go over and ask them for bread? That's, that was, I, I hated that. I hated asking. Well, how do you knock on this door and ask for pardon? How do you knock on God's door and ask Him to hear your case? He's not even a human being like, like us. I mean, God in His pure essence, God the Father, how do you even get there? Or how do you get to Him? Or how do you get Him to come down here, right? Job wondered now at this moment in his life, I think it all came home to him, he realizes, I do need this, I I need God to do this, I need this day in court, but how do I get it? Is there even a way for my cry to be answered in the first place? We're going to read on, you know, in the the next couple weeks, and uh, and Job, and we'll find that God did answer him, technically, but God didn't reveal himself to Job in a way that answered his queries directly. He just answered Job in a way that made Job realize he actually doesn't have a case. And God is still God. Whether or not he answered Job in any way, shape, or form. Beloved, we make our appeal tonight. We find our answer to this question a couple thousand years later in history, don't we? When Jesus Christ, the Son of this God of our Creator, entered human history when He appeared by His own will in our courtroom, 
In Him and in Him alone is the actual and complete answer. In that text in Hebrews, what we hear is Jesus saying to us, saying back to Job, yes, it is possible to find the way to God. It is possible to have immediate access to and conversation with and acceptance by Him, but it is not based on the record of your own goodness. That's not the way to evaluate your life. It is not the way to evaluate your pain or your suffering. It is the wrong way. God is not an accountant like this. We must believe this. It's, it's your, the quality of your life is not God weighing your good against your bad. If you are a believer tonight, your life is always weighed by the good of Jesus over against your bad. You are always accepted in the beloved because you are in the beloved. So we cannot look at suffering as this evidence now that God is disappointed with our weekly contributions. We've not come to a kingdom like that. We've not come to an economy like that. The only way to have access to and conversation with and acceptance by God is through Christ, the one and only mediator between God and human beings. There was an old economy. That's what the text in Hebrews is talking about. There was an old way of things. There was a different covenant where things were touchable, right? There was a blazing fire and... You could feel its heat, literally. There were sacrifices. You could smell the blood and the stench of dead, burning animals under that economy. God was speaking, but it was terrifying. You'd beg for it to stop. You'd be stoned if you messed up under that economy, right? I mean, when you read the law, who, how did anybody survive? Disrespectful kids get stoned to death under the law, right? I see in my peripheral vision my kids looking at each other. I see and they know. They know, right? It's scary. It's terrifying. Right? That was the old economy. That's the reality. And God didn't change. He didn't stop being that holy in the new covenant. That's not the difference. The difference is the mediator. The satisfaction of that type of judgment. Under that economy, the old economy, there was no real covering. There was only a delay. And under that economy, if you didn't measure up, you were excluded. But you and I, we haven't come to anything like that, beloved. It is nothing like that in the new covenant. We've come to a new economy. We have come to something secured for us spiritually by God, not to anything of the earth. We've come to a whole new system, so to speak. We've come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God. We've come to the place of the king in Psalm 2. The joy of the whole earth in Psalm 47. The mountain loved by God in Psalm 78. The immovable mountain that abides forever in Psalm 125. That's where we are. Through Jesus Christ, we've been brought into the realization of God's eternal purpose to save people, not because they measure up, not because they have a good case in court, not because of their works, but in spite of them. We have come to the judge of all. We're there. We're in front of Him. We've gotten our day in court. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect because we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant. In Jesus, our cry for access to the ultimate judge has been answered. But through Him, we do not come having to stand there on our own merit. We come standing on His. God hears us. 
He lets us cry out to Him because we are in His Son. And the, the deepest issues of our soul have to do not with our questions, do they? Not ultimately, but with our failures and our sins. That nagging sense that even though we need someone to help us bear these burdens, we are also guilty people and it's God we're talking about. And so we wrestle with this all the time. Even believers wrestle with, can I go to Him? And we even pray like He's our enemy and not our friend. Like He's a manager and not a father. Right? We, 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 we almost beg like He doesn't want to give. Right? We know He can answer, but if we're honest, we know we'll never be able to get close. But in Christ, through the mediator, Job hoped to see and that we have, God is not just accessible for us. Someone else has appeared in court for us. The complete revelation of God's attitude towards people, what He really thinks about us, came with the coming of His Son, the Son that He sent into the world. The desire of the judge of all is to redeem and to save the guilty people in His courtroom. When any soul comes to Him, it finds Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood makes mercy from God not just possible, but guaranteed. And God is not righteous, or God is not unrighteous or unjust. How does this mercy flow to us? By God deciding not to employ the strictest justice and lighten, loosen the terms? No, no, no. He didn't do that. The cross is Jesus absorbing all of the strictest, holiest judgment in the universe and beyond it. All in Himself. All at Calvary. See, salvation is not God pretending you didn't do what you did. Salvation is God punishing someone else completely for what you and I did. That's salvation. That's why we can stand in His throne room. The debt is paid. That's why. The sentence has been carried out. It just hasn't been carried out on us. But for us in Christ. In Christ. Before the judge of all. Right? Before this one that Job longed to see. In Christ, justice and mercy meet. That's where it is that righteousness and peace kiss each other. And the blessings rain down on our broken souls. Beloved, won't it be pleasant to get the verdict of the only objective and pure judge in the universe? Isn't it great to know that you have been weighed? You have been measured? You have been found wanting? And Jesus took up your case? To know that it is God who declares you righteous? Who can bring a charge against you now? Believer, if, if you look, even, unfortunately, even to the closest ones in our lives, we accuse each other all the time of sin, don't we? We just judge each other and rail on each other, even in the most intimate, closest relationships of life. We're just constantly frustrated with each other for not measuring up to our expectations and demands and all these things. We know we're aware of it. We're very well aware of the places where we're failing, where we're falling short. We all have skeletons in our closet. We all have things we don't want anybody to know. He knows He knows, and believer, He has accepted you. Who can bring a charge against you now? So what what the world says about you? So what what your peers say about you? So what what your spouse may say about you? And it could all be true and probably is. 
But the judge of all is merciful. I love this quote from Martin Luther. It's, it's one of my favorites. Maybe I've read it here before. But we say this with him tonight. So, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's the claim tonight, beloved. He took up our case, and it's finished. For all the questions, all the fears, all of it, all the final appeals, they end in him. There is a way for us to appeal to the highest court in the universe, but it is not and never will be through our own merit. It is through the one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Job was answered not by God avoiding what Job went through because he's God, but by God becoming man and going through what Job went through times a trillion. Right? It's, it's just God's design is so beautiful and it's so perfect. And it's yours for the taking tonight. If you will believe on him. Let me pray. As Linda comes, here in a moment I'll be down front. We'll sing one last song together. Father, I thank you for the perfection of Jesus on our behalf. That you are the judge of all. You are the last place we can appeal to. There's nothing higher. And it's there, interestingly enough, it's there that we find redemption and forgiveness and salvation. In that last place to which we can appeal, the highest court of all, from that bench, there is mercy for all who come. All who come. And so, Father, we give you thanks tonight. I pray for everyone in the room this evening. I pray, Father, that they leave this place knowing that what Christ has done is sufficient to cover what they've done and who they are and what they will do. And I pray and ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll be here down front if any of you need to come and pray.